what do you do when you go away for work? Can't you work here? We could have a treehouse business. <laughs> that sounds amazing. Then we could always be together. You know, the girls don't need a treehouse, Jack. They need you. The ambassador's staying at the special mission compound at his own insistence. I hate to piss on your party, ladies, but five dudes with M4s is not enough. Locals on your front gate are worthless. Perimeter's soft, and this whole compound's a fucking sniper's paradise. Any big element gets inside here, you guys are gonna fucking die. A second notice. All right, you, got, you gotta pay it. Okay, okay, I'll figure it out. And what are we doing about the oak tree in the front line? Well, the removal's 700 No, it's $1,200. It's not 700 The guy's trying to rip me off. I mean, it's, Becky, it's Becky, wait. listen, no I'll be wait. home in two weeks, okay? <laughs> I'll take it down myself. Then we're really gonna need life insurance. Uh, Welcome to McDonald's. Guys, chill out. Calm down. Mommy's driving, okay? We'll take 25 Happy Meals, please. No, no, we don't want 25 Happy Meals. Sir, can you just hang on one more We're second? So I'm hungry. sorry. I know you are. Just hold on. But we want the toys. Just give me whatever you want. Six of whatever. I've got six hungry kids. We don't just do that here. throw it all in there. Daddy, we're having a baby. What? Becky, what did she just say? A <laughs> baby. We're having a baby. Another baby? A baby. How many happy meals? Alma, you, you can give me whatever you want. I don't care. Chicken McNuggets. We're having a sister. We're having no, a sister. No, that's it, please. Not the front gate. Absolutely not. You have a U.S. ambassador at risk. Send us. Chief, you gotta send us. The ambassador is in his safe haven with his body man. You're not the first responders. You're the last resort. You will wait. GRF, where are you guys? Please help. They're digging in now, Roan. We need some air support. Spectre gunship and ISR drone American firepower, man. I know what we need. Chief! 20 minutes now. Chief! It's going from a rescue mission to a suicide mission. Let us loose. Lives are at stake. You are not direct action elements. Chief, think. You let them take that consulate. Where do you think the next target's gonna be? NS, we need your help. If you do not get here soon, we are all gonna fucking die. Come get in the fucking car now! Go! Now! Go! Well, stop! Do not leave this compound, Amal! Get in, Amal! Let's go! Amal, you're not clear to go! God damn it! None of you are! Say goodbye to contract work. Well, you can't put a price on being able to live with yourself. I'm concerned. This isn't over till it ends. That's when they're all dead or we are. Oh, Lord. Oh, Jesus. Guys, I think they're with us. They're with us. They're with us. <laughs> Any other six guys? I don't think we make it. 
think we were meant to be together last night. The odds were a thousand to one easy. What do we get? We get to go home. All the gods, all the heavens, all the hells are within you. What is that? Something Boone dropped on me earlier. It's just been rattling around my head all night. Okay, um, this one is fairly short and to the point. I just forgot to mention one one aspect of the uh, narcissistic tyrant controller mentality, and that is when anything comes into their purview that threatens their narcissistic sense of themselves, which is basically all of reality. They um, they they tend. It seems like they tend to move to control or destroy that's what their general fallback is when anything that comes into their space that threatens their their delusions uh they want to control or destroy that's what it that's what it seems and when you're talking about uh narcissistic girlfriend or boss or tyrant you name it that's the uh fallback plan it seems to me to defend their delusions all right, well, enjoy, and, um, and uh, we'll catch up to you in a week. Welcome back. I'm going to keep it fairly short and sharp this week. I've got a 10 or 12 minute rant from Dr. E. Michael Jones at the end that I'd like to include um, that I th is just highly relevant to the dynamics that are going on largely in the USA at the moment. Uh, that opening scene was from 13 Hours, The Secret Soldiers of Benghazi. So that's one of the films I'd like to talk about. So I'll have a couple of bullet points about um, where my focus has been the last 10 days or so, and then uh, talk a little bit about the themes of Logos versus Narcissism and how they come out in these two films. One's going to be the 13 Hours film, and the other one is The Gauntlet with Clint Eastwood from the 70s. Uh, so we'll, we'll get to that. Um, I guess I should say, just as an aside, that in the case of 13 Hours, and same with a film I mentioned in the past, which was uh, Argo, I'm well aware that these are these are almost little little kernels of fake knowledge that you're seeded from Hollywood to make you think like you have some idea of what was happening in that in that political event, and it almost makes you like 
go away thinking like you understand <laughs> the scenario, uh, even though you're getting the perspective from guys that are like agents inside the globalist agenda. So you, you just, you have no sense of the agent, the agency role they're playing in carrying out the globalist agenda, but there's some outstanding valor and themes and heroism that actually happens at their perspective level. So that's what I just want to focus on when I'm talking about 13 hours. But um, in terms of the race riots in the USA, I just haven't been drawn in. It's partly that it's USA and it's um, and it's just such an obvious uh, red herring. Uh, but it, I, I have it has given me a chance to like step back and look at this whole Corona thing. Uh, what exactly just happened and what's realistic next steps and you know the the formula that's being played out in the USA uh, if they wanted to do something like that worldwide it'd be very very complicated because the tensions are so unique uh, in every single country so I don't know how you could have whatever the plan is the next two or three steps in the plan is in the USA I don't know how you could possibly make that happen worldwide unless there's a certain like you make it happen in the USA and then and the world kind of sees that and then it becomes much easier to follow along I, I'm not really sure but I can kind of um, speculate on what I think is happening there but first I just wanted to reflect a little bit on on uh, some of the kind of major I guess you could say victories of the controllers in this this corona pandemic uh, palava I guess I think it's I mean for me it started back in 9/11 they they created this this concept of terrorism that was so dark and scary in those videos of the terrorist training camps and all this that it made the population just willingly give away their due process and rights like crazy like the Patriot Act came along and Oh, it's fine. There's everyone's or the governments are spying on us. That's fine. The super super um, invasive security procedures. That's fine. All of this and Guantanamo Bay. That's fine. No hearing, just prison imprisonment. That's fine. No free press. That's fine. Julian Assange gets like basically incarcerated. That's fine. You know, on and on and on. <laughs> because the boogeyman they created was so unbelievably, you know, scary the way it was coming across. Well, one of the big, so due process got thrown away. Rights got like relegated to like second priority. And then this idea of presumed guilt started to come up because when I'm boarding a flight in Victoria, BC, where there's probably never been anything violent ever, and I'm going through these security measures at the Victoria airport, they are treating me like I'm a terrorist until I prove otherwise, right? And then, and the whole world just accepted that, that yeah, I'm guilty until I prove myself otherwise. Yeah, go through all my things, make me do these crazy steps. I think this virus has really solidified that thinking. Like it's like crazy to make you think that strangers and neighbors are carrying a deadly virus until they prove they're not. And then, it, but then, like the logic of it just completely collapses because, well, how often do they have to prove they're not? You know, <laughs> like they, everybody has to go for a test every two weeks. Like, how crazy is all of this? Due process 
free speech, presumed guilt is now, or presumed innocence. All these three things are just getting thrown right out of the window. And you've got leaders. You've got, first of all, you've got like business leaders and quote unquote scientific leaders making declarations like they're the czar of health control. They're making declarations on TV one day and the next day the police are enforcing it. It's, I, I just don't even know legally how, how, anybody, how any of that is defensible, but that's, that's what's happening. The president goes on TV one day, declares the curfew. The next day, police are enforcing it. Like, like it's um, ruling by fiat, right? I mean, that's a king. That's a czar. That's like, there's no process. There's no legislation. There's no dis- debate. There's no opposition. It's just going immediately into law straight from CNN. It's, I just, I don't know how that's getting through the cracks. Like, I don't know how there aren't some activist lawyers that are just tearing this thing apart. But, um, or maybe it's just taking time. But, but the point is that the population has gotten comfortable. They've gotten comfortable with due process out the window. Free speech, out the window. Presumed guilt, it's a fact. Spying on each other, that's a fact. It's just, that's just fine. And they're like so quick to give up these like precious jewels of Western society that I'm, I'm, I'm really consistently shocked. And, but, but even like there's nobody in the system that's behaving like they believe it either. It's like they're quite happy to use it as a stick to beat you with, the rules and um, policing and things. I'm talking about the, the virus uh, part of things. Until their day is over and they all just go for beers together, you know, <laughs> have a laugh about it all and start it all again the next day. This week where I'm staying, um, there was a group of cops that found out where I'm staying is having is a closed beer garden. You can have drinks here after after hours. And so they came. They were socializing with three or four of them, having a great time. Somewhere through the piece, they noticed that there's like five other tables of people having a great time. Well, once they were finished with their drinks, they went and called their precinct or whatever, and uh, there was a raid. 30 cops comes after the, the other cops leave to to beat up the vendor here on social distancing rules. Yeah, I mean, could you be more like hypocritical all in one moment? It's just an obvious excuse to beat each other up with a stick that is just completely psychological. Anyhow, so it got me thinking about where could this possibly be heading? And in terms of the problem-reaction-solution methodology, if I just take the U.S., so they stir up racial tensions. They're barely, I mean, they had to do the agent provocateurs, but I don't think, and now they're doing the statue thing. and It it, it just seems like it's not catching the way I think the controllers probably wanted. But it's enough unrest to make people very quick to be keen to welcome more authority. Like, I mean, their ultimate goal is to have a population that is begging for more authority, more draconian controls. So here's my current theory. Stir up the racial tensions. Now you've got a mob of mostly youth that are kind of fighting each other. They're out in the streets. At the same time, you've sort of got public intellectuals and podcasters and YouTubers criticizing the whole thing and poking holes in in the whole thing and the motives and the agenda behind it. I think one of the tidiest, like, next couple of moves, if I was a controller, 
is somehow get that mob of both those sides uh, fired up together and turn them against the more established critical thinkers, public critical thinkers, and start to take take that hostility out on the more middle-aged, successful people that have time and energy and, and thought to uh, criticize the whole thing. And then at that point, you've got, you've got a large portion of the population that will be quite quick to be happy to welcome more draconian controls and all of a sudden that's it that's kind of the end game scenario if they've got if they've got tanks rolling into neighborhoods and the bulk of the neighborhood is greeting them with open arms they've got they've got an occupation just like iraq or i just don't know how it exactly like like i said last week that there are tribal tensions in every that you could inflame in most places um, definitely Bahrain is just under the surface in Saudi it's there it's fairly under control but it's there um, in most African nations there's tribal histories but it just has to be so customized I don't know how they I don't know how they can do this at a, at a global level I don't know how they can do the do the problem reaction solution but anyway that's to me what they want they want maybe maybe they just win USA and then it just rolls out across the world I, I don't know but they want the, the bulk of the population begging for more authority and throwing away their rights and throwing away due process and accepting a czar, making declarations on TV uh, that go straight into the rule of law imposed by draconian military and paramilitary police. That's, to me, what they want. I guess just like Israel and Palestine, same, same exact thing. That's what I think is coming next if... And, oh, in terms of, I mean, this is a bully behavior, right? I mean, this is a narcissistic, tyrannical, arbitrary bully behavior that's coming through from the powers that be. I think, I mean, any experience you have with a bully, they don't stop. I mean, if they start shaking you down for lunch money and you just keep giving it to them, they just, that just doesn't stop, right? It just keeps, until you get a gang of, like, your best buddies to stand up, and shut the whole thing down um, it just keeps escalating so that to me is people aren't going to get I, I this isn't this is just like the Patriot Act it went in they created the whole terrorism thing they announced Isis was defeated they announced al-qaeda was defeated and all the draconian measures stay and they just keep incrementally year by year getting more and more severe and everyone just keeps going along with it inch by inch so that's what I see with this uh, corona thing They've accepted like these arbitrary medical declarations, all of these rules that make no sense. So if they just stir up enough chaos that people welcome more authority and they just go about their day trying to be good little boys and girls, that, I mean, that'll just not stop until people um, fight for their freedoms and their process back. That's my personal view on things from here. And like I said, I haven't been that drawn into the whole racial thing it just uh just giving me time to reflect i always think when i think of uh somebody trying to stir up racial tensions and failing i always think about the grinch who stole christmas uh and he took the um you know took all the material <laughs> gifts and and decorations and uh and then they celebrated christmas anyway you know what i mean like you don't hate each other the way we hate you you know, like, they think they can just light a match and have racial tensions and flame. But they don't know that, like, 
that's not <laughs> that's not on most people's minds. Most people's minds are not going through their day um, with like this racial tension just under the surface, ready to erupt. Uh, and I think that that's probably coming through at the moment as well. So the uh, the two films are The Gauntlet and 13 Hours, the, the Secret Soldiers of Benghazi. And I, I actually listened to the audiobook of the 13 Hours story, hoping to try and get more insight of it. Because these guys were like ex-CIA, some of them were CIA, uh, or they're actually, they're contracted to the CIA. I thought they might, they might, in the audiobook, they might tell some more truths, but the thing was just bulletproof. So I'm sure it was heavily vetted by the CIA. So you're not going to learn anything about any conspiracy that was happening around or the, any part of the globalist agenda. But it's still, like I said at the beginning, it's still a fantastic, uncommon valor story. And, I, and I've been really, really drawn to it. And I think it's because the six guys, the way they fight together, the way they work together, is exactly the, just, it's part of the DNA that I somehow uh, took on through my, I guess it was high school and university sports, from my university engineering, that's just our, that's just the way we were. We just speak brutal truths to each other all of the time, understanding that we're being honest with one another and that we've got shared goals and that we're all going for the same shared goals. That was just the way it was. And then even for my first like 15 years in professional work experience, even in business school, that's the way it was. I just never confronted the politics of narcissism, really, in my real life until until I started consulting. And even then, I managed to be blind to it for the first few years <laughs> until I started working for a Spanish-run farm. And then I started to like run right into it. But anyway, so I think that's partly why I was, I've been drawn to this film, because it it like exemplifies the 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 play and work life that we are that i have always like been drawn to and it's just my, my like it's just it's my culture i guess i'd say which i guess is a christian ethic at some level but i never thought of it that way it's just the way it's just the way that my experience has been and most of my friends experience but most of us are christian and all of us are raised in the christian ethic so it's just it's just sort of like you, you don't notice the water when you're swimming in all the, when you're all swimming in the same water. I think it brings out both of them bring out a fantastic contrast between what logos looks like and what narcissistic tyranny looks like. I, I gave you a metaphor last week about what logos looks like in terms of AA, and I think that that's the easiest one because I think most people accept that there's. There's a healing power that's really, really good in that AA process of surrendering and then truthful speech, shared goals, and right action. Like that whole process, I think. So in terms of, um, E. Michael Jones had a great metaphor for the narcissist that I just, I think I'm going to probably carry this with me for a while because it's powerful. But basically, you're on a really nice highway coach line, okay? It's a really nice bus ride, but it's late at night. And you're on a dark highway, and it's all dark everywhere. But the dome lights are on, the hall lights are on, and the bus is empty except for you. All you can see is your image in the window. And all you can think about is how clever you are, and how, how um, handsome you are, and how funny you are, and how intellectual you are, whatever it is. And you're having this fantasy of admiring yourself. 
with this image. That that is to me the the narcissistic. That's where they get trapped. They get trapped, obviously, being in love with their image. But it goes further than that. Like then, like somebody like Robert Redford comes on the bus, and and you have to then like revisit your belief system that you've just spent whatever a couple of hours being in love with, or you have to come up with a reason why his his looks and success just don't measure up to yours. So you have to like defend the fact that you have spent the last whatever amount of time completely fooling yourself if you don't want to suffer that ego death at all i guess i'm not the the, the most like handsome brilliant hilarious uh entertainer in the universe you know so to me that is the narcissistic dilemma you get trapped in this in this falling in love with lies you're telling yourself it's just a it's just a fantasy projection of an unreal existence. And then the deeper you go, the harder it is to admit that you've been fooling yourself all the way along or someone else has fooled you. And then you, then you have to just double down and double down and double down on the lies that you're telling yourself. So in the case of the 13 hours story, there was, I guess you could say, there was, a, there was on the CIA side, there was lots of narcissism. <laughs> And then you had these, these security contractors that were just completely, their culture was Logos. So the two characters, I guess, that are probably the easiest to exemplify the narcissism is the station chief of the CIA, who he wanted to just rule by an iron fist. It, what he cared about is appearing like the boss, appearing like he knows more than everybody, appearing like he's smarter than everybody, and he won't take any input doesn't matter how factual from any from anywhere from any other quarter it's it's more about his prestige and his elitism than than facts on the ground and the process that he's following is just declaring himself the boss all day long i'm the smartest guy in the room and i said so and that's why i'm the smartest guy in the room because i said so and every time anybody think, brings up a fact that contradicts what he thinks he'll ignore it or shoot it down to defend his belief that he's the smartest guy in the room the other guy that was even, I mean, there's no way this the guy in real life was as much of a villain as they made him out. They really made him look like the goat of the whole thing. There's no way he could have been as bad as they made it look in this Hollywood picture. But he was the body man of the ambassador. And he, you could just see right from the beginning, he was, he was a likable guy. He was kind of charming and likable and friendly. But you could see that he was way more caught up in his image than in facts and skills and preparedness. And the guys from the security team were just confronting him with, with questions and cautions constantly. And he was just dancing away from it all the time by like, oh, yeah, he's got us. You know, like the, the, the ambassador is safe. He's got us. Like in this narcissistic, they're like, you don't understand. These guys can organize and they've got heavy artillery. Yeah, but he's got us. We're his body man and we're, we've got handguns, you know. Contrast was coming through through the whole picture. Meanwhile, the secret secret soldiers guys are they, they'll they'll confront each other. It doesn't matter about the hierarchy. I mean, they'll follow orders. They respect the the chain of command. But when there's a fact that contradicts the decision making, they'll just they're so in their each other's face. They also um, take the piss out of each other constantly as well. But that's just part of their culture. So. 
they're constantly confronting the CIA station chief, the, the body man, with facts that aren't lining up with the decision making. And inside their own crew, they're doing the same thing to each other constantly. But they listen to each other and they respect that culture. The movie plays out, I, I mean, I don't need to go into the actual storyline, but it's just an unbelievable demonstration of the contrast of those two cultures. You've got the individualistic, narcissistic tyrant, tyrant in the case of the station chief. The body man wasn't a tyrant, he's just, he's just in love with his image of being a, a body man of the ambassadors. Like, this is like a career post that he was like feeling sort of like he's starring in his own movie, which, by, which is exactly how most of us feel when we've had a couple too many drinks. <laughs> you start to star in your own movie, and if you make decisions in that state of mind, you make bad decisions just generally. Um, in terms of the gauntlet, it was just, to me, that's just a pure, uh, it's such a resurrection story. Like it's the, it's the passion story completely. Um, but I think it's really cool that the center of the story is a prostitute that every time she opens her mouth, she just spews raw, brutal truth into whoever's face that is there. And so the uh, Clint Eastwood character He's kind of attached to his image as a cop, but as time goes on, he's listening to her confronting truth, and eventually he surrenders to truth completely and decides that he's going to throw his body on the line to save, to, to save this truth, to resurrect this truth, basically. Remembers that you probably remember the scene with the bus. So you got the, you got the thick like um, armor of steel at the front of the bus that he welded together and the, the two of them hunker down in the front of this and then they, they tell the police force their path and the police force just completely arms the whole road like a military style gauntlet that he has to try and navigate through and there's deception all the way through double crossing and betrayal but to me it's a metaphor it's all not only not only the passion story but it's a metaphor for the family like the family is really meant to be hunkered down in that front of that bus underneath that steel. And when you're all in there together, you're, uh, you know, somebody gets shot in the leg. That's okay. You take over the accelerator or somebody can't, can't see the street. That's okay. You, you um, somebody takes over the steering wheel and you're just helping each other all in the name of delivering truth to the world at all costs. Right? So that to me, that's the, that's the image that's underneath at the front of that bus. And then when he confronts the, I think he's the captain or maybe the police chief at the end, who's the bad guy, he's just a pure narcissist. And up until the very end where you get the truth confronting the narcissist, the narcissist looks like the one, the powerful one. And the narcissist looks like the one in total control and they're the smartest, most powerful, most successful. The image is like, completely contrast. The Clint Eastwood character is this drunken, burnout, loser cop, in a way, who never amounted to anything in his career track. And then you've got this police chief that's just completely, always looking like spit polish, uh, you know, completely together. But he's the, but the police chief is the tyrant, the narcissistic tyrant. And then, and then uh, the Clint Eastwood character eventually gets, decides that that it's, that it's worth it to um, sacrifice himself for truth. And when the two come together at the end, it's just so obvious. The police chief looks like the pathetic, weak, 
narcissistic tyrant, that he, bully that he is, and perverted as well, and sadistic, and you name it, and psychopathic. The Clint Eastwood and the Gus O'Malley characters, they just they just blow them away. I mean, they, they win over the troops because you can just see, as soon as you see the two next to one another, the, the truth of the narcissistic tyrant is just obvious, that he's just a psychopathic, pathetic loser, and that Clint Eastwood is doing the right thing. He's doing what cops, you know, were sort of sold on when they when they got into that business. I think both films are unbelievably helpful in making that contrast and showing how uh, weak the narcissistic mindset is in any kind of a crisis situation. It it shows up. It shows up as completely uh, fragile and weak if once it gets confronted. That's really the gist of it. I, my travel plans have been deferred, so I'll have an update on that next week. And uh, same thing with my book arrival. should be any day now. And I'll have a lot more uh, when I come back online, probably a week or 10 days. And, oh, I like this one, this one metaphor. And it's the idea of, uh, do you want to lay yourself on the line for truth, to resurrect truth? Or do you want to crucify truth? and release the spirit of Barabbas. So this is, to me, what the choice is for humanity right now. Because, like, and this is this experience that I've had on my <laughs> Facebook and most of my social connections as well. People hate the truth. They hate it. They want to shoot you. They want to jail you. People will say, like, if even still here now, if I, you know, if I say to the wrong person this whole virus thing's been a complete hoax, they'll, like, threaten to call the cops. They hate it. They crucify truth every chance they get. But the choice is, sorry that you don't want to let go of your illusions or your delusions, but every time you crucify the truth, you release the toothless thug, Barabbas, the spirit of Barabbas, and uh, and the toothless thug can run loose for another whatever decade. So that's the choice that that we're, that keeps bubbling up. Promote truth to the highest value and uh, sacrifice yourself for that or live with live with being run by toothless thugs, basically. That, to me, is, is the crux of the matter. All right, so enjoy the talk from, uh, from E. Michael Jones. I hope you enjoyed, and uh, we'll, we'll get back in touch in 7 to 10 days. All right, take care. And as painful as it is, Logos is definitely rising. But the Germans didn't have that critique, and maybe it's because your argument that that, that Luther let them off, and then they ended up where they were, and it was not a critique based on Logos. The racial critique began in Germany with Wilhelm Moore. He's the man who created the term anti-Semitism. Every time I try and say this, I am shut down. These are people who are ignorant they are people who don't want to know the truth. You say, no, this is the word. It's, this is, I don't care. I, this is what they say. I don't care who invented this word. I don't care what it means. I don't care that you're saying that it's racial. 
I am going to impose my definition of anti-Semitism on you because I want to punish you. This is the state of discourse now. This is what happens when you, when you, uh, this is the, 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 the front lines of discourse now. Are we, as Christians, able to propose our critique, or are we going to be shut down and say, that's the only thing, the only word they know. They have one bullet in this gun. There's one bullet. If they miss you with that bullet, well, they don't know what to do. There's no, there's no uh, uh, sense of, well, I, I understand what you're saying here, but this is my objective. No, that's not the way it works here. We will call you names, and you will be demonized, and we will ban you, because we do not believe in free speech. We believe in demonization. That is pandemic across our society. We are in the last ditch now. We are fighting for the last remnant of the ability to speak freely about what is actually going on. Which is a, which is a huge revolution from the 60s. If you suppress this, you will create violence. That is the simple message here. They had political power. And in both instances, they used that political power to suppress any ideas that they did not like. And the main idea that they do not like from the time of Paul to the time right now is Christianity. They do not like Christianity, and they will do everything within their power to suppress anyone who expresses Christianity in a way that they find uh, threatening. That is precisely what's at stake here. So this, is, this is the essence of Jewish privilege, is basically the right to have the definitive trump card in every discussion. In other words, I have the definitive interpretation of that passage in the New Testament, and if you don't agree with my definitive interpretation, I will do everything within my power to destroy you. If we keep going down this road, you will have no rights to do anything, to say anything. You will have no rights to disagree with anyone the oligarchs appoint as their anointed spokesman. This is the whole gist of this hate speech campaign. Hate speech has no meaning whatsoever. If you look at its roots, hatred is a Jewish virtue. They believe in hate. It's part of their religion. That Again, I, I, this will get me banned, I know, but talk to Rabbi Solvachik. He wrote the article. I'm just quoting him. Hatred is anything that this group of people does not like. That's what hatred is. This is a completely arbitrary and tyrannical uh, abridgment a violation of our rights as Americans. And we have to come together to defend what is left of America. They're separate phenomena. The only thing that it has to do with is the suppression, this general sense of hopelessness that is spreading throughout this country, where you can see not only uh, a manifestation of this is, is the homeless crisis. This is a function of the breakdown of this society that began with the abridgment of speech and the control of the narrative, the total control of the narrative by the oligarchs who had no concern for the common good. Why is it that those, you know, 33 million people have watched these YouTube videos, which are primarily one way or the other based on, on Logos? Because people are sick of the arbitrary and tyrannical nature of this government that is nothing but the imposition of the will of the powerful on the, on the, on the backs of the powerless. They're sick of it. And, and, and at a certain point, you come into this world and you begin to wonder if you're young and you don't have a memory, uh, was it always this way? Is that what it is? 
Is it just that we are going to be ground into dust by powerful people through things like usury, student loans, all these other forms of covert control? Is that all there is? Is it just chaos? So you tell them that there's a logos uh, to uh, the universe and that God is the author of this logos and God's will will be done in history one way or the other. And this logos will triumph and people start feeling hopeful again. And I guess they don't like it when people feel hopeful. Another characteristic of this culture, the systematic ridiculing of the role of the father. Look at anyone. Look at Hollywood. Hollywood is nothing but a, a, a machine created for the, the destruction of your culture, the destruction of the norms. And, and, and they succeed. And when they succeed to a certain point, the outcome is never associated with the people who created it. Did Hollywood create homeless people? Did they? Well, I think you could make a case for that. Because if you undermine the moral law, specifically beginning with the sexual constitution, you will destroy the family. And if you destroy the family, people will be born into a world where there's no one to support them. What, 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 are, what, is, what is a homeless person? I mean, you see them all over the place now. It's a, it's a man who's sitting on a bench, and he's got no one to go to, sitting on park benches getting intoxicated because the world is intolerable, because it's so chaotic and meaningless. This is where it came from. Let's start holding these people accountable for, what for their actions. Who were the people that uh, told us that uh, obscenity was part of free speech? Well, it's the same group of people that's telling us the political objection to their tyranny is hate speech. It's the same group of people. So when are we going to hold them accountable? The rules they came into was into existence through historical circumstances. This is what it is. It is what it is. And I'm saying what it is is being threatened now. This is all we have. Okay? And it's now being threatened. And we are facing uh, complete and uh, complete tyranny. That's the issue right now. This or con new consciousness. Consciousness is always God's plan. And so what we're going to see here is this confrontation and whether uh, which side succeeds depends on what people do, whether they collaborate with God's plan or whether they reject God's plan. But, but there's a plan there. And the fact that we have reached this point and the fact that the ADL has turned Jewish privilege into a bestseller on Amazon is an indication that we're winning. It may not seem that way, but I think we've already made significant gains and we have to just stay the course so that they can't consolidate their gains and, and, and shut us down completely. This is based on freedom. Well, what are they doing now? They are undermining their own narrative because it's now becoming obvious that this state is based on control. It's not based on freedom. It's based on the manipulation of the illusion of freedom in areas like sexuality as a way of imposing control on you. And so they let the cat out of the bag now. And we all know that the United States of America is interested in control. They're not interested in freedom. It's control. This is obvious. And the oligarchs who are promoting this type of sexual freedom, uh, uh, sodomy, uh, homosexuality, the whole thing, are really doing that to control us. And pornography is a form of control. And suddenly it's obvious. So Yeah, I, I, I have a slightly different view. I think I think that the 
the the coronavirus was orchestrated to disguise the worst depression uh, since this time. That the, the crash was inevitable. The the economy was heading in that direction, and now suddenly this is a convenient way of distracting everyone's attention from the malfeasance that brought us about. And the malfeasance is largely usury. It's this economy, because Paul Volcker put the usurers in power, the uh, usurers were able to appropriate all surplus value. What do I mean by that? Surplus value is the difference between uh, a pound of flour and a loaf of bread. The, there, the only thing that got added to the flour was human labor. It made it more uh, more valuable, and you got a higher price for it. How does the how does the the oligarchs appropriate that surplus value through usury? And beginning in 1973, they introduced when wages stopped going up, they introduced the credit card, and it gave people the illusion that they had the same amount of money when they were just going deeper and deeper into debt. That's that's the issue. That's the issue that led to the crash of the economy. The economy is overweight, uh, way too much debt. And this is their way of disguising that fact and 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 distracting you from it. That's what's going on. Yeah, God is in charge of human history. And but we need the eyes to see that. And that's why I wrote that book to give people the eyes to see the big picture.